welcome back to another episode of MTMA Bug Bites. I'm your host, Mike Bentley. And in this episode, we're going to dive into a topic that can be pretty intimidating for most of us, myself included. We're going to be talking about genetics. It's our genetics that we have to thank for things like our hair color, our height, and a whole host of other traits that make up who we are as individuals, as a family, and even as a species. Now, the world of genetics is a big one, and admittedly, it's not one that I fully understand. So we're not going to be drilling down too deep into the science behind genetics. Instead, this episode's hopefully going to be shedding some light on how researchers are applying their knowledge of insect genetics to improve pest control. Now, I've always felt like I had a pretty good handle on the idea that the more we understand something, the better we are at solving problems that involve it. But I'm going to level with you here. Trying to wrap my head around the idea that learning more about something's genetic code could somehow catapult our pest control efforts into the next century wasn't exactly something that I completely understood. So when I decided to cover such a complicated topic for the podcast in a way that wouldn't instantly confuse you or put everyone to sleep, I knew I needed to call in the heavy artillery. Enter Dr. Edward Vargo. I'm Edward Vargo, Professor and Endowed Chair of Urban Entomology at Texas A&M University. Ed's made an impressive and distinguished career out of learning more about the genetics of urban pests, like ants, termites, and bedbugs. This experience has gifted him with the incredible knack for being able to simplify some incredibly complicated scientific concepts. So, I knew he would be the perfect guest to tackle the monumental challenge of trying to educate someone like me on his area of expertise. To get things started, I asked Ed to give me some background on how he wound up in a career studying bug DNA. I was interested in biology, and then I got interested in social insects because they're cool, you know, cooperative behavior and the fact that you have all these individuals that work together for the benefit of the colony. And so I did my PhD looking at reproductive physiology in fire ant colonies and how queens regulate reproduction and the development of new queens and males in colonies. And um, as I you know, was working on fire ants, I also spent time in France working on Argentine ants, addressing similar questions. You know, people had lots of questions about fire ants, about how to get rid of them. And I could see the problems that fire ants pose. And um, so I started speaking to the public more about fire ant biology, fire ant management and stuff. And then I realized that there's this whole field out there of urban entomology, not just fire ants, but other insects that cause people grief. And that's how I got interested. And then I was hired uh, in 1998 uh, as assistant professor at North Carolina State to work on termites, which I had no previous experience working with. But um, that was a, a great opportunity for me. And I was getting into some genetic approaches and stuff, which I applied to, to termites to address questions about their basic biology as well as um, as well as management because I thought that you know using these genetic studies could really teach us a lot about the otherwise very cryptic uh, foraging and nesting habits of subterranean termites as well as um, enable us to address questions about uh, colony elimination which was which was big at that time because centricon had come out fairly recently and it was being sold as a colony elimination system. And the only method people had used to identify colonies was mark uh, recapture methods. I want to take a quick pause here for two reasons. First, I love how Ed's first response as to why he decided to study insects was because he thought they're cool. Shout out to Ed for keeping it real for us bug nerds out there. 
And second, I want to talk a little bit more about this mark recapture technique that Ed's referring to with termites. Marking bugs is something that entomologists have been doing for a really long time to track insects. There are a lot of different ways that insects can be marked, but when working with termites, as Ed mentioned, researchers usually rely on one of two methods. They could either individually paint termites, or they could use a special dye to color a food source. That way, when termites fed on the colored food, the respective color could then be seen through their mostly transparent abdomen, resulting in color-coded termites. These techniques would allow scientists to collect termites from the field, mark them, and then release them back into the field where they would ideally rejoin their colony. The idea here was that if marked termites were ever recovered, then researchers would know what colony they came from. Great technique overall, but it does have its limitations, such as there are only so many colors of these special dyes and paints available, so you can only mark so many colonies at once, which could ultimately create issues when you're trying to track a high number of colonies that could have overlapping territories. And second, the markings themselves may not actually last very long, ultimately putting a time limit on how long you could track a colony. But thanks to some really cool genetic tools, Ed and his team were able to find a way around these setbacks to more accurately track termites and to more confidently address the questions of colony elimination. Using the genetic methods, we could actually genetically fingerprint colonies, and those genetic fingerprints don't change over time. So you can come back to a colony years later and identify that particular colony. And so we were able to look at, to conduct studies to track the fate of colonies, you know, over a period of years, um, which you couldn't do with, with other methods. So this genetic fingerprinting technique allowed Ed to bypass some pretty serious limitations for tracking termite colonies and provided researchers the means to more confidently answer some very big questions surrounding colony elimination. This was huge. And these tools also gave researchers access to a whole new set of data that would play a major role in advancing our understanding of termite colonies and how they behaved over time. But termites weren't the only insects that Ed applied these genetic tools to. And while it made sense to me that being able to genetically fingerprint and track social insects could help with control, how would something like this help us to control a non-social insect, like bedbugs? Yeah, so that's a good question. And I think describing this one study we did probably will, will answer that. This study involved one high-rise um, building in Raleigh, North Carolina, that was pretty heavily infested, and it was also um, the residence of um, of elderly people, um, low-income elderly people, who are especially vulnerable to bedbug infestations, and then some a couple of high-rise buildings in um, Jersey City, New Jersey, and. You know, one question we had was, what is the genetic diversity of the bed bugs in these different buildings? And the reason why that was important was we wanted to determine whether those infestations arose from like a single female or a small group of bed bugs that got into the building and then built up their population and spread, you know, to all the you know the different apartments that were infested, or whether people were continuously bringing new bed bugs in from the outside and constantly reinfesting the building. And what we found was surprising to us, but we've confirmed this in lots of other studies now, is that in both cases, both in, in Jersey City and in, in Raleigh, those buildings had been uh, infested probably by a single female or the eggs of a single female. And then those 
populations built up and then spread to the different apartments. So even though the infestations had been several years up to a decade old, it looked like there was a single inoculation of somebody bringing in some bed bugs and those bed bugs survived and then were able to proliferate and spread through the building rather than people continuously bringing new sources of bed bugs in. So this is important because it means that in a lot of these buildings, even though people probably bring infested stuff in, that most of the time those bed bugs are not able to survive and and build up populations. So that if you can identify infestations at an early stage before they you know get through the whole building, you can have a really big effect at preventing the rest of that building from being infested by bed bugs. It's pretty crazy to think that a building-wide infestation that spanned the course of nearly a decade was the result of a single introduction, not because of repeated introductions from new tenants over time. Ed and his team were able to confirm this timeline because after their original studies established that all the bed bugs collected in one building were related, they returned to those same buildings years later to conduct separate studies and use those same genetic techniques to show that the bed bugs collected years later were in fact offspring from the original population they encountered years before. There's a lot to unpack here from these studies, but the fact that a single introduction could be responsible for infesting an entire building is huge from a pest control perspective, because it highlights the importance of monitoring and early detection, as well as follow-up inspections in preventing or containing the spread of bed bugs, especially when working with multifamily properties. While Ed's previous research focused on bed bug populations at the local level, he and a team of scientists are currently looking to apply that same genetic mapping approach to trace bed bug populations on a global scale. Their goal? To better understand the spread of pesticide resistance in bed bug populations. Previously, you know, in the up until the 1940s, bed bugs were fairly common, um, not just in the U.S., but in the industrialized world in general. And then with the advent of DDT, basically we wiped out bed bugs from here and all over Western Europe. They were hardly ever, ever seen. And then we've had this resurgence of bed bugs, not only in the U.S., but worldwide. And these resurgent bed bugs have high levels of insecticide resistance, mostly to pyrethroids, but other um, insecticides too. And so we hypothesized that during this time when we weren't finding bed bugs in the U.S. and other parts of Europe, they developed this resistance. And then those resistant populations got spread around. And those are the sources of the resurgent population that we're seeing in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. So we're interested in knowing you know, where that was to try to determine what was the treatment regime used in those areas. You know, how did they develop resistance? Uh, and then get spread around to these other places. Understanding where resistant populations may have come from may paint a better picture of how resistance started in the first place. But that's not all that it can tell us. Since resistance starts at the genetic level, researchers can actually identify different types of resistance. There are different you know, mechanisms of, of resistance, but one one that we can detect genetically is this knockdown resistance, KDR. When we're seeing this knockdown resistance much more commonly now than we saw it um, even 10 years ago. So that's sort of alarming that these already resistant bed bugs seem to be becoming even more resistant. 
And that is probably due to both uh, the movement of individuals around and also the local pressure that's due to insecticide um, applications. Now, I want to throw a disclaimer out that this next statement in no way is a reflection of the amazing instructors I had in grad school. But I can distinctly remember sitting in genetics class and starting to zone out a bit as soon as the teacher started throwing around phrases like genes that could confer resistance. So I'm going to pump the brakes a bit on this next part of our conversation before we get too far into the weeds. But what I do want to point out is that Ed's work with this project is far from over, and they are still collecting very important data that is helping to paint a better picture of how resistance in bedbug populations started and how it will continue to affect populations in the future. This type of work is incredibly important because understanding the history of resistance development could ultimately help us to modify application practices or alter product usage in a way that maximizes control efforts while minimizing or avoiding the development of resistance in a population. All right, quick recap so far. So we've talked about how genetic fingerprinting was used to track termite colonies, and we also learned how similar techniques were used to discover how a single bed bug introduction could lead to the infestation of an entire multi-story building. These applications are incredible and have helped to advance pest control science to where we are today. But in the last bit of this episode, we're going to touch on some more futuristic, sci-fi-esque applications of Ed's research that could ultimately lead to the development of some pretty unbelievable control tools for managing ants and possibly even other common pests. So we've done some work on tawny crazy ants. And one question we had was, do tawny crazy ants form really large super colonies like you find in Argentine ants and the little fire ant and some of these other um, highly invasive ants? And so we did a population genetic study across the Gulf area where tawny crazy ants occur. And we were able to show that, yeah, indeed, they do form um, these large sort of super colonies. They tend to be more limited in that they are, you know, maybe an acre or a few square acres in size. But within that area, it's all like one colony. And actually, the colonies in Texas are almost genetically identical to those in Florida and Georgia and Alabama. So we think that there was like one big introduction into Florida and then just, you know, whole colonies got moved around to these different places where we find them now. Using population genetics to find ground zero for an introduction of invasive ants can help us to better understand and hopefully limit how invasive species might make their way into an area in the first place. And the same is true for tracking how an invasive pest like the tawny crazy ant is spread around once it's introduced. Much like the red imported fire ant or the Argentine ant, the tawny crazy ant can rely on human-mediated transport to cross state lines, hiding in common landscape items like potted plants, mulch, or soil. Identifying these transport methods is critical to improving our efforts at establishing a successful containment strategy once an invasive pest is identified in a new area. This data is great and incredibly useful, but Ed and his team are looking to take his genetic work one step further. So one thing that we're doing is we've sequenced the genome for the tawny crazy ant, and we're interested in possibly using a genetic method um, known as um, RNA interference or RNAi to control these, these insects. So that involves identifying 
genes that would be specific to tawny crazy ants or maybe just ants in general. And then you can design pieces of RNA that will match those genes and essentially shut those genes down. And then you, the idea would be that you would um, administer that in a bait, probably, most likely. And then as the ants eat it, it gets into their system, gets into the cells, and stops the production of whatever protein you know, that this gene you're targeting makes. So I think that's a next next big area for urban entomology, especially for social insects because of their food sharing behaviors, where you can feed them a bait and then they spread it through the colony so that each individual doesn't have to actually feed on the bait to pick up in you know in this case the RNA. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for um, for ants and, and termites. And so this would be very either specific to termites and maybe even to a species of termite or specific to ants that could be fed as a bait to control colonies. If you cut all that on the first listen, then you're already doing better than me. Because even I had to stop and digest this a bit to fully appreciate the awesomeness of what Ed was really talking about. So I'm going to run through a bit of the cliff notes really quick. First, and most importantly, they obtained a fully sequenced genome of the tawny crazy ant. Basically, that means they have a working genetic roadmap of all of the building blocks that make up this particular pest. This is critical because this is what tells them where to locate different genes that are responsible for critical functions. Think of it this way. Imagine moving into a new home that has a long bank of power switches, and you have no idea what any of those power switches control. Having a sequenced genome is like finally being provided a detailed diagram that told you exactly what each power switch was responsible for controlling. With the sequenced genome, Ed and his team could then use genetic tools such as RNAi to essentially start flipping off these genetic light switches or the ant's genes that would be responsible for critical functions like, for example, fat production or having something to do with reproductive organ development. By switching these functions off or on, the insect's development is impaired, and that impacts their survival. And, as Ed mentioned, these tools could be incorporated into baits, which we already know to be a great way to deliver a toxicant to control social insects, like ants or termites. Best of all, these RNAi impregnated baits could be incredibly species-specific, meaning they would only affect the target pest they were designed for, and they would have little to no effect on non-target organisms. Now, all of this sounds great, but there are some limitations to this technology that are currently holding it back from being mass-produced. For starters, finding the right genes to target isn't simple, and this process alone can take years to get right. And even if you did find the right target gene, genetic material like RNA isn't very stable on its own. And we tend to like our baits to last a really long time when exposed to harsh environmental conditions like bacteria, UV, rain, and temperature fluctuations. So coming up with the right method for protecting this genetic material from degradation while being impregnated into a bait in the field is likely going to present its own set of challenges. And while the likelihood of finding ways around these issues is inevitable, it's going to take more time. So if you're hoping to see something like this on the shelves at your local distributor in the next few years, I wouldn't hold my breath. For the final few minutes of my interview with Ed, I wanted to touch on a topic that is shaping up to be one of the most exciting, but also one of the most controversial applications of genetic tools for pest control. 
This method actually involves altering the genes of live insects in the lab and then releasing them into the field to control target populations. And believe it or not, it's already showing a lot of promise as a viable control option for some seriously dangerous pests, like mosquitoes. Now, before I go any further, I already know exactly what you're thinking. Mosquitoes, genetic modification, I've heard this story before, and I know exactly how it ends. Before you completely write off the rest of this interview as the ramblings of two mad scientists, I'm going to let Ed explain this process much better than I could. What he's going to describe here is one manufacturer's technique for genetically modifying mosquitoes that involves a very unique type of bacteria. So they've got a couple methods. One is they have um, these Wolbachia bacteria that get into the ovaries of the female, and then they'll also get into the reproductive organs of the male. And the Wolbachia can come in different strains, and unless it's the same strain that the male and the female have, the eggs will not develop. So they've actually taken some Wolbachia, which does not occur naturally in the mosquitoes, from, they've taken them from Drosophila and introduced them. So they put them into into females, but since the males don't have them, when the males go to mate with the females, the offspring die. So that's that's one method that they've used, and they've done that in Australia and some other places, I think in, even in Brazil. And they've shown that they can effectively reduce populations or even eradicate populations. As Ed explained, the genetically treated mosquitoes become dependent upon the presence of Wolbachia bacteria in order to produce viable offspring. So, when a treated mosquito mates with an untreated wild-type mosquito, they cannot reproduce. This approach has been incredibly successful, but for this method to work, scientists need to produce and release enough treated mosquitoes so that the treated population outcompetes the untreated population in finding a mate. That translates to a lot of mosquitoes. And the mosquitoes must constantly be produced in the lab since the treated mosquitoes released in the field are not designed to survive and produce offspring. This means the process can be incredibly labor-intensive. One way around this problem is through the newest and even more controversial method of genetic tools known as a gene drive. So there's a, a newer method that people are using, which is a gene drive method, which theoretically you could put into a few mosquitoes, and the way that it's constructed is that the piece of DNA that you've put into the mosquito, which may interfere with the mosquito's development or ability to find mates or eventually could even interfere with the mosquito's ability to transmit certain uh, viruses or disease uh, pathogens. And it's constructed in a way that Individuals that do not have the gene drive mechanism, when they mate with an individual that has the gene drive mechanism, then their offspring die. And so the only way to get the offspring produced is to have two individuals with the gene drive system mate together, and then their offspring will survive. So it's sort of like there's like a toxin and antidote situation. If you just have the toxin, you're going to die. So you need the toxin and the antidote. And they're both in the gene drive mechanism. So if you're producing eggs with the toxin, then you need a male to fertilize those eggs with the antidote in order for those individuals to survive. 
And that way you can drive these traits that you're interested in having in the population, which could eventually wipe out the population or, as I said, reduce its ability to vector um, certain diseases. You can drive those through a population fairly quickly, at least theoretically. The most powerful difference between gene drive technology and the other forms of genetic modification mentioned is that mosquitoes affected with gene drive technology can actually pass along the affected traits to their offspring. It's this type of science that researchers hope will someday be the means to an end of arthropod vector diseases around the world. It's hard not to be excited about the promise that this research holds. But even with so many potential applications for this type of technology, public opinion of this field of science is generally pretty poor because on the surface it sounds terrifying especially if you don't fully understand how it works and let's be honest we're not all ed so few of us really have a good handle on this field of science and to make matters worse when this type of research does actually make headline news the headlines often read something like scientists are going to genetically modify a blood-sucking insect and then release it into the wild to pass along its mutant genes to its offspring i mean Seriously, that literally sounds like the opening scene to every horror movie set in the late 21st century. But believe it or not, public opinion isn't the only hurdle that stands in the way of utilizing these types of tools. When asked how long he expected it to take until these types of tools hit the open market and what roadblocks stood in their way, Ed had this to say. I think we're probably five to ten years in terms of the research to start doing this and to actually have for RNAi, for example, to have targets that are identified, to have methods that have been refined to apply them reliably in a bait. So I think we're like five to 10 years. The real question concerns registration. You know, EPA doesn't really have guidelines right now for how they would register products that would contain these things. So you know, what, what would be involved in getting a bait product with an RNAi sort of active ingredient registered? Um, and that's, that's a big unknown. We've seen that the, the issues involved in sort of getting public acceptance of these things. Um, and that's going to, that's gonna, I think, take a while for people to really understand what these things are, what the limitations are. Um, you know, what the benefits might be versus any potential risks, and then how is, it's not even clear, you know, which agency would be um, responsible for signing off on these things at this point. I mean, would it be EPA? Would it be USDA? What's the regulatory process going to be for approving these sorts of things? So those are all issues that are going to have to be worked out before these actually, you know, make it to the marketplace, but um, I think it's just a matter of time. So it sounds like the science behind this new technology isn't the only thing that's complicated about it. Everything from how the products will be registered and regulated to what limitations should be imposed on them will all have to be ironed out long before genetically based tools are released to market. Either way, if this is any indication of to what the future of pest control is going to look like, I can't wait to see what lies beyond the next horizon. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of MPMA's Bug Bites, and a special thanks to my guest, Dr. Ed Vargo, for helping me to better understand the crazy field of genetics. If you liked what you heard, be sure to like and subscribe to the channel so you don't miss the release of our next episode. And if you have an idea for a topic that you're interested in hearing more about, 
Let me know and we may be able to choose your idea for a future podcast. To submit your feedback, email me directly at mbentley at pestworld.org. I'd love to hear what you have to say.